live opinions, descriptions, and accounts expressed on the Best of Times Radio Hour are those of the hosts and the guests of this show, and not necessarily those of Town Square Media or this station. Consult with your attorney, accountant, or other professional for final advice in making your decision. The Best of Times, live from 710 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity. Helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The best of times. Your host, Gary Caligas. Good morning. I'm Gary Caligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only magazine for mature adults in northwest Louisiana. Thank you for tuning into our show today and also thanking those who are listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com and also thanking those who might be listening via the Radio Pup app on their Apple and Android devices. In just a few minutes, we're going to talk about the use of anesthesia during surgical procedures. So stay tuned to the show for some very beneficial information for you or your loved one. It is Saturday, January the 28th, and we are broadcasting our radio show today from the studios of News Radio 710 Keel, a town square media station here in Shreveport, Louisiana. However, today's show has been pre-recorded for broadcast, so we will be unable to accept calling questions and comments from our loyal radio listeners. Be sure to pick up the February issue of the Best of Times at one of our 522 distribution locations beginning on February the 1st. We thank you for the many compliments about our magazine. We do appreciate hearing from you. Remember, if you're unable to find a copy, you can visit our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com to view both current and past issues of our magazine. The Family Health Day will be held on February the 4th at the Feist Wilder Cancer Center in Shreveport. This is in honor of National Cancer Prevention Month. This event will be taking place again on Saturday, February the 4th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 501 East Kings Highway in Shreveport. Free on-site screenings. It will begin at 9 a.m. with Mardi Gras music activities for the whole family. Various screenings, blood pressure screenings, glucose checks, a lot of great door prizes and information, as well as presentation by faculty, physicians, and staff on health care topics. In addition, the Best of Times Radio will be broadcasting live beginning at 9 a.m. at this event on February the 4th, so do join us as well. For more information, do call 318-813-1056. The Health and Wellness Expo will take place on Saturday, February the 11th. This is an event sponsored by KTAL, NBC6, and Fit for Life. It will take place at the Shreveport Convention Center beginning at 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. In addition, at this event, the Best of Times Radio Hour will be broadcasting live from the exhibit area as part of this particular expo. So do join us. This expo is dedicated to help make Shreveport, Bossier, and the entire Arklatex healthier in 2017 and beyond. When I announced that LSU Health Shreveport's mini medical school will begin on February the 28th. It's a four-week program held every Tuesdays through March the 21st. LSU Health faculty will discuss various interesting health care topics. So if you want to participate in this particular event, uh, do call 675-8789 at 675-8789. 
Remember to log on to our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com for listing announcements made during today's radio show, as well as information about upcoming events, activities, and news that you can use. We'll be right back with more information, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A-Bears, Tenning Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the best of times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, proudly presented by Abers, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is Dr. Charles Fox, the professor and chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology at LSU Health here in Shreveport. And he's going to be discussing anesthesia in the news. Thank you, Dr. Fox, for joining us today here on the best of times radio hour. Gary, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I was so impressed with your presentation. I've been to about nine mini med school, mini med courses, and I do want to encourage you to just announce it that they're going to do beginning another one beginning on February the 28th. And I was very impressed with your presentation, and I think all the 40 or 50 attendees or mini med students were very impressed with your presentation. We have never heard anybody from the anesthesiology department. It's a great venue, and to be inter- interact with the community is a wonderful experience. I mean, we learn more as practitioners about your thoughts. Uh, and concerns uh, when you're entering our, our thoughts, arena. Is that, is that thoughts or <laughs> misunderstandings? I think it was some of the misunderstandings. Well, we have there's you, some mis- educated. There's some misinformation out there. Um, you know, uh, we're sort of quiet behind the scenes profession. And uh, well, we're going to talk about a lot of those today, but I will tell you, ninety percent of the people had that, you know, that wow moment. My wow moment was propofol. Right. I didn't know that's used. I thought nobody uses that. Right. And then, then you're going to talk about today. It's highly used. Yeah. And it's very effective. But it was been, you know, the the media made it sound like it's the worst thing ever that anybody could use, a physician could use for for anesthesia. But right. That I, I would say tell you, ninety percent of the people. They they were like, whoa, okay. Now, yeah, now we yeah, propofol originally came out and primarily handled by anesthesiologists, and then it became a very popular drug because of a lot of the different pharmacodynamic and physiologic uh, and recovery aspects, uh, and then got pushed into use by other medical professionals. Um, it, it's been a wonderful drug. It came out probably in 1991, 92. I remember using it first when I was a resident, and... Uh, up to that point, we had uh, sodium pentothal. Sodium pentothal uh, really caused some dramatic effects uh, physiologically, and then postoperatively, people would complain about the hangover effects of pentothal. Oh. So propofol is metabolized quickly; it's gone, uh, and, and and often patients say they wake up refreshed, uh, which sort of moves into one of its <laughs> problems, and that is it's 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 so, it's so a, the, the prior one, the sodium pentothal, is that the true sir? Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm under anesthesia, you ask me questions? No, no, no. And I, no, that no, I would no. just give you everything you never no, needed to know? I think the thing that people have to realize with these medications is they're extremely powerful. Uh, they have profound effects on the body. Uh, I mean, after we administer propofol, uh, you lose the ability to breathe on your own, and we have to take over that function. Now, some people use it for sedation and not the same doses that we do, but you always have to have the capability to be able to rescue an airway uh, because people are going to react differently to, to medications based on what's going on with them physiologically, what drugs they have in their system they're taking for any medical problems that they may have. So it becomes a pretty complex and complicated ordeal. 
um, when you start using powerful drugs like propofol, fentanyl. Um, you know, things that we commonly use in the operating room. Okay, well, t- tell our, our uh, listeners out there, you're in heavily involved with our medical school here. Right. right. And you are in charge of uh, right. telling our medical students and residents about right. anesthesiology. So give us it, a little it, It's a wonderful experience. My wife and I moved to Shreveport about four years ago. From? From New Orleans. And we've had a wonderful you time. You sound like a New Orleans <laughs> person. Well. Uh, You've lost your accent. I've lost my accent. Uh, but we've been here about four years. And. Uh, looked at a bunch of different jobs and took this job primarily because it's the only academic center in an area that probably has over a million people referred for health care. So when you're trying to train residents to become excellent physicians, excellent anesthesiologists, they need exposure to index cases. By index cases, I mean neurosurgical cases, obstetrical cases, cardiac cases, the ability to do regional anesthesia. And because our residents get to rotate not only University Health but all the other hospitals in the area, they just have a wonderful experience. I mean, our residents... Uh, when you look at index cases, are in the 80th or 90th percentile in the nation. So that means wow. that they're getting more than 80 to 90 percent of the residents that are trained elsewhere. And that looks good on their experience sheet as well as they're getting that opportunity to see. I've had one of those particular cases, patients and that I took care of and did anesthesia compared to some of the others that may only have one or two, right? We graduate very experienced practitioners, very clinically savvy practitioners uh, who do well on their boards, integrate into you know academic or private practice very easily uh, we commonly hear from people that do fellowships that they're the best fellows in the program awesome. we're very proud of, of you know what they've been able to achieve here we've also gotten into the uh, research arm we'll, we'll probably delve into that a little bit when we talk about interoperative monitoring and awareness uh, we've had some projects with other universities in the area uh, and so we found that there's just a wealth of information and talent in northern Louisiana. Uh, you know, moving up here, I, I really didn't know what to expect. I, I knew what the hospital was about. I knew what the training opportunities for the residents were about. Um, but everything else has been a very, very pleasant surprise. Well, and, you, and you have to remember, you know, for, for a residency, the clinical volume in the index cases really drives the whole program because off of that will come research and education. And it, and it doesn't take one too long to understand that the more complex cases that the residents are involved with, it's going to benefit their educational and their research capabilities. So, um, you know, that's why it's just a great place to be. Well, again, we're, I'm definitely, I know all of my, many of my listeners are very proud that we have the medical school here and that, that we recruited you and you're, that you're here in this report in Bossier City area. It's, it's a great place. Okay, so I, I thought your your initial presentation was was mentioning the little bit of the history of anesthesia, which I thought was a little, a little fascinating. It, so give our listeners a little overview. It is. Of that. We're, we're a relatively new specialty. That's I mean, right. we have not That's really been mean. along. I mean, uh, I think uh, the first ether anesthetic was delivered in 1846. Uh, but then probably for the next 70 years, there, there, there wasn't a lot of progression. So ether, how did, how did they know that was going to knock somebody out or be, make them uh, unable to well, pull we, that tumor out of that dentist that we, decided? That's right. What did he we decide? actually have a dentist who, who started anesthesia years ago, tried to do tooth extractions, and I think he stumbled upon ether. I think it was probably being used overseas in Great Britain. Oh. And, and uh, you know, it was just, uh, they would, it was an open mask. Uh, with gauze over it, and they would just drop ether on the mask, and the patient's own spontaneous ventilation would allow those inhaled particles to anesthetize them. 
So there was no ventilator at that time. Uh, there was no obviously no EKG, no blood pressure cuff, no pulse oximeter, all the modern equipment that we live with today. Um, and uh, but what know. other types of? Well, tell them when when did that start? I was I was shocked. I thought it was way back in the 1700s, but it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I mean, it, it, right? It was probably the late 1800s when all that started. And but really, the the specialty didn't become modernized probably until the 60s and 70s. What? Um, so. Um, if you look at the type of surgical procedures that we do now, um, you know, that would not have been possible in those previous years. We've had such an advancement in equipment, monitoring equipment, uh, pharmaceutical uh, drugs that we use, um, you know, and we are now entering into what's called concierge medicine so that we can pharmacogenetically, believe this or not, Gary, we can test you preoperatively and know what your enzyme induction status is and then design a profile of drugs for you with a specific surgical procedure that you're having done uh, to move through the institution, hopefully to prevent, uh, you know, adverse drug reactions uh, and decrease your length of stay. So, so we're my, not there yet, but we're getting there. My DNA will tell me there are certain markers in there that will there, tell you? We, we believe that, um, you know, that as we talk really about cool addiction, research. there may even be some hope that we can pre-select individuals that we recognize as those becoming possibly, uh, you know, who become addicts um, and maybe designing a different course through the hospital for them to hopefully avoid as much narcotic interface as, as they can. Well, so I've, it's interesting times. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, so this is one of the clinical research projects that we're doing in the anesthesiology department. Well, it's it's something that's being done nationally and we're starting to tap into it and seeing how to integrate it into our practice. Wow, um, but, amazing. you know, when you think about anesthesia, we've got uh, general anesthesia, which classically you're unconscious. You have no pain, uh, probably can't move for the majorities. And then there's a regional anesthesia uh, where you may be having surgery on your arm or your leg, and we can anesthetize that by injecting local uh, anesthetic into the nerves that supply that area, putting that area to sleep so you don't feel anything, and then probably some sedation will be provided for you. MAC anesthesia monitored, uh, basically, where you would have sedation for small procedures. And then the last category is local. So I think as we get into our categories, uh, what we're going to talk about later, I think it's important to remember those four different types of anesthesia that are delivered every day. The other thing I want to mention is, is there's tremendous sophistication in the operating room today. I think you saw, we don't have the benefit of pictures on radio, um, but just how intricate it is with all the monitoring uh, devices that are applied to the patient, all the information, physiologic information that's generated uh, on each patient. Uh, we have a beat-by-beat uh, you know, EKG. Uh, pulse oximeter, which gives us information on how well you're oxygenating. So we have a lot of information uh, at our fingertips. And then on the more critically uh, ill patients, we have uh, even more technology that we can use to get further information uh, about what's going on physiologically with these patients. I'm going to go on a little tangent here because I remember somebody asked me to ask you this question. Um, They wanted to know what's the differences regarding a medical doctor who's the anesthesiologist and all these nurse practitioners who are nurse anesthetists and all the... You have a whole team. It's not just the doctor. We do. She's doing everything. That's exactly right. And and I think we've... Most uh, community hospitals have gone to the team concept. So we have nurse anesthetists 
who have gone to nursing school, usually have been in the critical care arena for a period of time practicing, come back and spend uh, some three years, some a little over three years, training in the field of anesthesia. Um, and then you've got the MD degree, who go to four years of medical school, then four years of residency. Uh, then they may choose to do a fellowship for one or two years uh, and specialize in cardiothoracic or pain or OB, uh, anesthesiology, and then, and then practice. So the thing that we have to remember is there's really an explosion with the baby boomers, the number of patients moving through the systems. And... Um, we're, we're trying to, with the team, cover as many locations as possible. And as you can imagine, we're pretty spread out in some of these arenas because of all the technology advances that have occurred. And, and Doc, you need to probably mention to all our listeners out there, it's important that you have that dialogue with both your physician, surgeon, but also the anesthesiologist and the team that might come visit you in your um, their pre-op, your pre-operative consultation. No, no, that's exactly right. And the pre-operative consultation is extremely important and to you know interface with the anesthesiologist and understand expectations. And but it's a chance for us to better understand what's going on with you. And then the more honest the dialogue is, the more information that we get from the patient, um, you know, the better job we can do interoperatively, sort of predicting things and using certain medications that, that don't take us down certain pathways. So, um, and, and most of y'all are, are trained, have been through some of those uh, dialogue courses, but hopefully our listeners out there, if you're going to have surgery, you need to have a great dialogue right. with that individual, right. right? Right. You know, it's interesting. Years ago, they found that uh, they were trying to figure out what decreased anxiety more. Uh, for the patients, and they found that a good preoperative conversation with the anesthesiologist, understanding what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, and then the anesthesiologist knowing, you know, and understanding more about the patient uh, disease process, why they were here, and what was going on, um, was better at lowering anxiety than Valium or midazolam, benzodiazepines <laughs> that are administered intravenously. Well, so. no, we all like to have that one-on-one. At least, at least I do. I don't know about other listeners out there, but we do like to have that dialogue. It, it makes us good that yep. that doc and his team is going to take care of me. Right. Uh, maybe the other is going to do the surgery, but at least I know this is the anesthesiologist is going to put me. I'm going to bring me back quickly and right. safely, right? Right, exactly. And, then, you know, that's the important thing is, it is. is having that eye contact. But but I'm, I'm maybe I'm not emphasizing, I think, my listeners out there, you need to be as frank as possible, telling that individual all your H and P, your exactly. history, and and any conditions that happened the day before, the week before, or a year before, right? Right. We are the ones that are in there looking over you during your time of surgery. You know, our, our symbol for the organization is a lighthouse, vigilantly <laughs> looking out and protecting and and providing a beacon. So, um, you know, the more information we have about you, you know, obviously the better the outcome and the better job we can do for so, you. So the medical specialty of anesthesiology and anesthesia is really relatively new. It is. The residency programs probably didn't start till the 40s and 50s, and there were very few initially. Um, and Before and that, that, the surgeons did their own? What, well, what before that, um, there were uh, MDs that were trained, um, and and tra- the training was you know not as formal and as organized as, as it became in the 50s and 60s, and obviously nowhere uh, compared to where it is today. We'll, we'll continue that discussion okay. in a couple of minutes. We'll be right back for more information. But now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A Bears Ten and Country F Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer. 
Gary's got more of the best of times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, The Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by A Bears, Tenning Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is Dr. Charles Fox, the professor and chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology at LSU Health here in Shreveport. And he's discussing anesthesia in the news. Uh, he can give a presentation at the Midi Med. Uh, present many med courses uh, a few months ago and I was very impressed and the, all the other 50 people there attending were very impressed as well and several of them said, Gary, you need to have him on your radio show. <laughs> so I, I called Dr. Fox up and we scheduled this time for him to be on our radio show to educate all our thousands and thousands of listeners out there in the Arklatex. So thank you, Doc, for coming today. Well, thank you. So we talked a little bit about the history of anesthesia, but one of the presentations you gave which was fascinating is is the, the factor regarding awareness under anesthesia. So explain to our listeners what that means. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit and sort of explain to folks where we are now in the field of anesthesia. Okay. So the 70s and 80s, uh, we refined the ventilators so that when people lost the ability to breathe on their own intraoperatively, which commonly happened, we became a little more sophisticated, and that sophistication has grown. Now we have ventilators that can ventilate one kilo uh kids in the operating room all the way up to, you know, 400 and 500 pound adults that we see. Uh, the 90s really led us into the cardiac stage of anesthesia, monitoring equipment, knowledge, uh, drugs tailored to cardiac patients uh, were refined. And now, uh, probably starting around 2010, we're in the age of the brain. So we're now beginning to study the brain intraoperatively, uh, figure out a way that we can monitor that. Gary, we have a large number of patients that are over the age of 65 that are entering the operating arena, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. the baby boomers move through the system. And postoperative cognitive dysfunction um, happens fairly frequently. And so all the other monitors look great. You know, your blood pressure is fine, your heart rate's fine, your O2 saturation is fine. Um, but for some reason, postoperatively, folks struggle for some period of time with some dysfunction. They usually regain it, but they do have cognitive dysfunction. Um, and if they and, had it previously, if they had a, a condition of, of dementia, early dementia or Alzheimer's, is there, does it get worse? Well, we don't think so. Uh, we think that most of the effects are reversible. Um, but I don't think we understand completely preoperatively, so there's better preoperative testing um, that's done on these patients to see where they are neurologically before they come into surgery. So very interesting presentation at our conference in October uh, in Chicago, which really opened my eyes when it showed just simple ability to draw pictures preoperatively on some of the elderly folks that we take care of and how much impairment there was preoperatively mm-hmm. and so it would be easy to see that those patients are probably going to have some postoperative cognitive dysfunction so i guess what i'm trying to say is the brain we're beginning to understand what happens under anesthesia we're beginning to develop monitors that detect things like awareness hopefully a little bit better um, but we're just starting on that on that uh, journey okay. um, awareness an- under anesthesia is something that every anesthesiologist fears they're they're taught about uh, and they're, throughout their training, I think any anesthesiologist would agree that one case is too many. Wow. Right? One case is something that you never want to see. 
Uh, unfortunate, unfortunately, we, we have, you know, 22, 23 million uh, anesthetic procedures every year in the United States. And although the incidence is 0.1%, so a very small percentage of those patients experience awareness, um, it's too much. And so we're hoping with the refinement of the intraoperative monitoring that will be developed in the next couple of years, it will give us uh, more information about how to prevent this. So awareness is, yeah, is, is a very interesting thing because uh, people are going to be aware at different points uh, of their journey through the operating room. So typically preoperatively, we'll start the intravenous, we'll give you a benzodiazepine. and Which does what? It provides uh, amnesia. Uh, your ability to remember things. Uh, and then we'll move back to the operating room and we'll give propofol or uh, Tomidate, what are called induction agents, which are going to render you unconscious uh, and obviously amnestic. Um, and then we usually give some fentanyl or narcotics to prevent pain. And then for most of the procedures, uh, we give muscle relaxants, which uh, prevents you from moving so that the surgeon can have an easier time with the operations that are uh, being undertaken. So when you think about awareness, you've got unconsciousness, you've got amnesia, you've got pain, and you've got the ability to move. And so there are different phases of awareness based on the holes that you may have with one of those therapies, if that makes sense. So you may have awareness but feel no pain and move, or you may have awareness, feel no pain, and, and you know not be able to move. Um, the one that we, we dread is uh, awake, in pain, not able to move. Um, wow. And, and so um, that is the minority of the awareness cases reported. Um, but it's still a hole that we, we really need to fill and figure out how to avoid that. So, so in, a, in awareness, does the patient come out a day, a few hours later when they come out of anesthesia? I knew exactly what was going on. Is that what they tell you? Some of them have a memory. So, so you know, we, we, we always commonly... Uh, explain to the patients that we're going to put you to sleep. But there's a big difference between undergoing general anesthesia and going to sleep. So when you go to sleep, mm-hmm. you know, you're able to breathe on your own. And if I were to shake you, you would arouse. Uh, when you're under general anesthesia, uh, you're unconscious. Uh, you won't be able to move, and you will not be able to breathe on your own. So sort of a misnomer you know, on the okay. definition of sleep versus a general anesthetic. Um, so when you arise or emerge from anesthesia, so we're, we're beginning to titrate the anesthesia off, people will wake up. We want them to wake up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the yes. purpose of this, <laughs> right? And, and so a lot of the awareness is at that time. Uh, so not during the procedure, but maybe before the procedure starts and then as the surgery uh, is over and we're waking up. So I think the majority of awareness cases are in those two slots. So, so but I'm, but I'm trying and, to and that's not uncommon, right? Not right, right. Mm-hmm. So we're going to sleep. We're going to that unconscious amnestic state. We may not be there fully yet. We may not have all the pain medication on board yet. Um, and then when you arise, obviously those things are titrated off and you're waking up. You're going to be able to resume breathing on your own and take on some of the physiologic uh, responses that you need so that we can take you off the breathing machine.
So explain to our listeners a little bit about sedation, because some procedures do not require a person to be completely under. Is that correct? That's exactly right, and that's why I went through the four classes. So you've got the general, the regional, the MAC, and the local anesthetic. Uh, so awareness of somebody that's localized with an epidural, they may know everything that's going on, right? They could. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I've had patients over the years who want an epidural and want no sedation. You know, and they and they want the ability to talk with the surgeon while they're having their knee scope. Um, that is a min- minority of the patients that that, that I put under, um, but we do, uh, you know, honor their wishes. Um, that's where the preoperative examination, which is what you're talking about, mm-hmm. is key. So they have to understand the anesthetic they're going to have and what that experience is like. So if you were to come in for shoulder surgery and we're going to you know, do a regional block and sedate you, you may remember parts of the surgery. You okay. shouldn't feel pain and you shouldn't be uncomfortable, um, but you may come to at various parts of the case uh, and realize certain things that are going on and then drift off back to sleep. So that's so, not unexpected. Not unexpected. Right. But what what happens if that person uh, says, I want to be cognizant and knowing what's going on, and he says, I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's going to happen. Uh, that does happen. Um, uh, please and, put me under really quickly. I don't right. want to see all this uh, well, cutting you know, incisions. And, and, and I think that that's why, again, the preoperative examination is so important, that, time, that, that dialogue that uh, communication and bond you form with the patient at that point so you can understand their expectations uh, as they undergo through uh, undergo this surgical procedure. So traumatically, these people that have awarenesses, are they like, I'm, I'm just, I'm, luckily it's not happening to a lot of people, but hopefully they're going to tell their, their, their physician, their surgeon that it happened, that right. I knew what was going on. And well, the is, it psych, is it psychological to it, it to them? It is. Now, I, I want people to understand that the, the highest risk group for having awareness um, are the emergent cases, uh, the emergent C-section where we're trying to figure out and balance the amount of anesthetic that oh, we can give okay. um, and then what effect it will have on the mother and the child, trauma, uh, cardiac cases, cases where people are really, really, really sick. People have to understand that every time we administer an anesthetic, it's going to have an effect on your cardiovascular system, on your respiratory system. And, and so sometimes your reserve is not there. And, uh, you know, we're making life or death decisions about quick what decisions. we decisions. Quick decisions. And if you look at, at, at most of the awareness uh, cases where there's PTSD mm-hmm. postoperatively, they usually fall into that category. Um, you know, unfortunately, I had a motor vehicle accident uh, patient come to the operating room that had a pericardial tamponade, had blood filling the sac around the heart, and the heart was beginning to lose function uh, and needed to be brought emergently to the operating room. While our hands were tied as to what we could do, the patient's blood pressure was extremely low, the heart rate was extremely low, uh, own saturation, you know, it was an emergency procedure. And so we were able to get things on board eventually, but there was a period of time as we try to move emergently uh, where your, your hands are tied really as to your options uh, that are available for the patient anesthetically. So it, it depends on that elective comparably to emergent. Right. And that in right. cause. You know, it, yeah, right. So are there risk factors in gar- regarding awareness? We were, we were talking some of the, the are there risk factors? Yeah, they're, 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 like I just said, there are people that are more prone, they're more prone to experience awareness. Uh, and that again is the trauma patient, the emergency section, the cardiac 
uh, surgery patient. Um, those are probably in the highest risk. And you mentioned at our, our presentation that they're now you are working on various research projects to detect it, right? Well, we do. So we're trying to better understand what's going on with the brain intraoperatively. We have uh, some monitoring capability now, um, but it's, it's, it's extremely limited. So we had a study with Louisiana Tech, and we were looking at intraoperative EEG monitoring just so we could better understand as the patient moves through the different phases of anesthesia okay. what the brainwave activity looks like. Um, the the BIS monitor, which is commonly used uh, throughout America uh, to give us a definition of what anesthetic state you're in, uh, only really gives you two to four leads uh, of an EEG to look at information, and it's located in one area as opposed to the standard EEG. So if you were to have an EEG, you probably have 16 to 32 leads on your you know placed on your on your head. So as you can. Imagine it's a lot more information that you would get with the standard EEG. And so you can look specifically at different sections of the brain uh, and, and get pretty detailed information uh, about what's going on. You know, it's interesting. We are just now able to, through vascular imaging, look at the brain and the brain flow and the changes with the different anesthetic agents so that we begin to understand even in more detail how these things work and act. And that's going to lead toward? Just a better understanding of what happens under general anesthesia to the brain and, and how we can monitor it better and different patterns that we need to look for. So so this, this, this biz helps in getting you more information that? It gives you more information about brainwave activity. Um, so it should tell you if the brain is uh, anesthetized, amnestic, unconscious. Oh. Um, uh, but but again, it's limited because it's only looking at two to four leads as opposed to the 16 leads that a standard EEG uh, has. It's just the standard EEG is a little more cumbersome to apply, as you can mm -hmm. imagine. Uh, it's it's a big ordeal. But we're beginning our investigation uh to, to see, you know, how it compares. Wow, so that's fascinating. It is. That's fascinating. It is. We'll be right back with more information, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Geel, proudly presented by A Bears, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Geel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, proudly presented by A Bears, Tunning Country F Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is Dr. Charles Fox, who is the professor and chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology at LSU Health in Shreveport, and he has been discussing anesthesia in the news. So, we talked about a little bit about awareness of anesthesia. We've talked about a little bit about the history of anesthesia, anesthesia and anesthesiology. And now we're going to discuss an interesting topic that's been in the news, and it's regarding propofol, right? That's right. Propofol, uh, as I mentioned earlier, came out in the early 90s. And, um, you know, it was immediately appreciated by anesthesiologists. And I, and I should say it's, it's mostly been in the hands of anesthesiologists and anesthetists uh, for that time period. Um, and the properties that we enjoyed uh, with propofol is it was a rapid onset and had short duration. 
so that it was it was perfect for the surgical arena. Um, so you so it's quick. It's quick on, quick off. Uh, so the side effects and everything, as I mentioned earlier, with sodium pentothal, it would linger for hours. For the elderly, sometimes for days afterwards. Whoa! Um, yes. You know, propofol is is basically gone within ten minutes. So um, it, it it's amazing. It's the ability to use it, uh, do an invasive procedure, and then have the patient wake up uh, very quickly after that. It also has some other things. Uh, the the incidence of nausea and vomiting postoperatively is lower with propofol than with pentothal. Um, so, a, so it's highly used throughout the world. It's it, now the, it, the number it, it one. Is, it's the number one induction agent uh, for anesthesiologists, uh, probably I, throughout the world. Definitely in the United States. We have other things, atomidate um, and ketamine, um, but propofol is by far the most popular uh, induction agent that we use. Well, induction think, meaning inducing yeah. anesthesia, rendering you unconscious. Uh, the patient at that point losing their awareness. But not everyone needs that particular type of anesthesia right. agent, right? Exactly. Because when they're sedated, when they're done in local, when they use epidural, do they use propofol? We do use propofol sometimes. You can reduce the dosing of propofol. Okay. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, propofol um, administration, you lose your ability to breathe at a certain level. So oh. the, the healthcare provider using propofol as we've unfortunately seen with the two incidents uh, in the national media where it's been used, really have to have the ability to control the airway and breathe for the patient uh, with its administration. So typically in hospitals, if they're going to allow the practitioners to use propofol, they have to undergo an airway course where they're trained uh, how to mask ventilate, how to intubate uh, the patients, put a breathing tube Mm -hmm. in and and push the patient either on bag or on a ventilator so that they can uh, breathe for the patient. Well, so it's a very powerful drug. That was the, the 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 news that caught our attendees there. Most people thought it was not used because of all these uh, two isolated instances. That right. it wasn't right. it was got, right. not used. When then right. you tell us it's the most popular use, right. that was like, well, right. okay. Right. And reasons why is it because of its quick onset and quick offset? Right. right? And, and I think the other thing is the the, the postoperative uh, patient experiences. Not that of, of, of feeling like you're hungover, but uh, commonly patients will feel refreshed. Uh, they'll tell you when they wake up. So that sort of gets into the addiction issue with propofol, uh, which primarily has been by healthcare providers, uh, primarily people in the operating room, because that's primarily where it's kept. Um, but with all the stress that, that people undergo in the medical community, uh, and difficulty sleeping, unfortunately, I think that's how it wanders into their lives, is a sleep aid. Um, and it's probably the last thing that you want to use as a sleep aid because, as we mentioned earlier, it's very, very powerful effects and ability to cause that person to stop breathing. And the, so, as you were saying, the dosage, you, you it's The so dosage varied. varies. It varies by age, uh, by weight? medical conditions, weight? by weight. Oh, wow. um, you know, everybody acts a little bit differently. Um, you know, when we're administering it in the operating room, we've got the ventilator there. We've got all the ability to place that patient on the ventilator or breathe for them. We're watching their EKG, uh, their heart rate, their rhythm, uh, their blood pressure. We're looking at their oxygen saturation. We know what their entitled CO2 and O2 are. you got the so full gamut. The full gamut. And, and really, in my opinion, 
um, that's the only place for that medication because and, of everything and you that's around you. Prior to that, that the, their their weight, their their condition, their medical right. conditions before, et cetera, right. all the other factors involved. Right. That the prior, right. the, the initial dosage that you right. give them is based upon all those criteria, correct? Exactly. Exactly. You know, so we have dosing guidelines. Uh, we even have dosing guidelines for sedation. But again, we're in the operating room, and if we have an issue. It's really our second nature to take over the airway and start breathing for the patient. Cause it's something the we, do. we do it every day. I mean, we that's do what all, we do. We do it all the time. So, uh, you know, we feel very comfortable and at ease using medication. So it, it's still popular, but it's but, but as you mentioned at our uh, at our our session, which caught me by surprise, it's like it's being abused because it's being easily available, right? It's, yeah, it's I, so easily available. You know, I think with most uh, medications nowadays. Um, they're accessible. Uh, you, you know, pe- people find a way if they if they have the need or become addicted to it. It seems that they find a way to to locate the medication. Unfortunately, um, uh, we are more cognizant of of issues uh, with propofol with healthcare providers, and we're doing a better job, I think, of, of policing the medication uh, in hospitals. You know, propofol is not a scheduled drug, so all the narcotics mean, are and scheduled. That means, and that, that, that means that the drug is typically kept under lock and key, and the amount used is recorded and the amount wasted is recorded, so tight, tight, tight regulation mm-hmm. of those medications. Right now, that's reserved for certain drugs, mainly our narcotics, as you can imagine, because they have high abuse potential and and high uh, you know effects psychologically and physiologically on the people that are taking it but I would say with the popularity of propofol and with the increasing issues socially with propofol uh, there's going to be a strong push by the FDA I think to make that a scheduled drug in the next couple of years uh, we have already taken those steps at our institution um, to sort of follow it just like a narcotic so uh, checking it out how much do you use if you're wasting it you need to record it you need to have a witness for the waste um, just like we do with the narcotics so we take the the use of propofol very seriously and and monitor uh, those who use it on for patients the other discussion you had about narcotics was regarding the opiates and and that they are used non-medically and and that it's getting Overused, and but there's a there's a remedy to it, right? You were talking about that as well. The narcotics. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the narcotic issue has been one for many, many, many years. Um, opium, uh, you know, goes way back, and and people have had problems with with opioids uh, for years. Um, in the mid 90s, the Institute of Medicine published a study about patients with chronic pain and talked about, right. uh, you know, all the disability that these poor people uh, have, their loss of productivity in the workplace. Um, and so it was at that point that physicians really, I think, were sort of shamed into thinking that we weren't doing a good job uh, managing pain in, in, in the population uh, Probably around uh, late 90s, early uh, 2000s, the Joint Commission that accredits uh, the hospitals came out and created pain as a fifth vital pathway. So we look at oxygen saturation, blood pressure, uh, temperature, heart rate, and now we we look at pain. Your pain index. Of every patient. Right. So there's a pain index that's followed. One to ten. Um, And so I think when that happened, 
if you look at the prescription, the number of prescriptions <laughs> that were written, it, it, it has gone up astronomically. So, so I think the physicians felt like they were going to be tracked, and the pain scales were going to be tracked, and um, you know, sort of a sense of shame. Everybody's saying I'm, have a, I'm number ten, and I need that over right, the right, oxycodone. Right, and, right, right. And, and now the physician know they're being measured; it's being recorded. Um, you know, felt like that they needed to react. And so there were a lot of prescript. There have been a lot of prescriptions that have been written uh, since all that went into uh, play. And that's causing detrimental. It is so patients it, and people throughout it, the world. Now. It, it is. It is so. You know, the, the number of scripts written goes up. Then the amount of narcotics that are sitting, uh, you know, in bathroom cabinets, it goes up dramatically. And and that's typically what happens with narcotics. It's the other people in the in the house or who come to visit the house. Uh, they get their whole their hands on the medications and then start to take those medications, and we believe that's how the addiction starts for those individuals. But it also c- could cause death and in- death by injury and death by not you know they're relieving their possibly relieving their pain, but their cause it has other causes. Well, right? narcotics are very very powerful. Uh, you know, uh, they too can stop your breathing um, if you take too much. Um, and so when people are prescribed medications, those are usually a, a safe dose for that individual based on the physiology and the pharmacology uh, that, that the doctor knows about that individual and how that individual is going to uh, metabolize that. But when others get their hands on somebody else's medications, oh yes, you know you, you, you can't predict how that's going to play out. Okay, then you mentioned about the solution, right? The solution using uh, naloxone? Is it naloxone? Right. So a lot of states have gone to writing Narcan, which reverses Narcan. the effects. Naloxone or Narcan, which reverses oh. the effects of the narcotics. So some states now, if you're going to write a narcotic script, you mm-hmm. also have to write a script for Narcan and instruct the patients or their family members on how to use it um, if some of the signs of narcotic overdose are being experienced oh, okay. by the patient. So, so that, that has been very productive in states. Uh, now, and even in this state, uh, all the EMS folks have Narcan with them. Um, so that when they respond to these episodes, they have a treatment available immediately for them. So is it an injection, or is what is it? It's, you, an, it's, a, it's an injection, uh, but it can also, if they put a breathing tube in, it can be given through the breathing tube. So, um, you know, either route. Okay, in closing, I, I just want you to help um, educate my listeners about what, at a minimum, they can do prior to surgery to help their physician and their anesthesiologist. Uh, We're going to drive home this preoperative visit. We, we are. I, you know, I think that the importance of that cannot be overstated. And follow uh, the instructions given by your anesthesiologist. Follow the instructions. I mean, we have specific things about smoking cessation. About uh, eating and drinking Eating before. and drinking before. And, and, uh, and a list, accurate list of the medication. Well, uh, because you're going to lose the ability as we administer anesthesia for you to protect your airway. And, and so if you have contents in your stomach, they can come up and then enter your airway. And then you have to, what is it called? Um, um, how do you pull it out? I can't remember. You well, exacerbate. You have to pull it. Um, well, you can go in with a bronchoscope and suck it out. But that doesn't always work. <laughs> so that's that's the reason. A lot of people say, well, I, I'm, I'm going to be hungry at, at 7 a.m. or what? I've got to eat. I've well, the more eat. honest you are uh, with your anesthesiologist the day of surgery or the, or the day before surgery, um, you know, the, the more dialogue that you have and the more information that's disseminated, 
the better experience you're going to have. And the, I know this this is a tough one so for some of my listeners out there is quit smoking at least the day before and the day of. 24 hours can really cause some significant changes in your pulmonary system that are a benefit to you as the patient. Um, so, you know, if you can quit, that's that's fantastic. Uh, but you're right, even even stopping for 24 hours has uh, can have an impact on your outcome. And be truthful to your physician and anesthesiologist about your medical conditions, exactly. about what you're taking, exactly. what medications you're taking, right? right. No, you're, you're, Don't hold it back. I totally agree. Uh, especially if, if they know that mom or dad has some cognitive issues, it might, might be advisable to tell the physician and anesthesiologist about that. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can build expectations only by the information that we're given. Well, thank you, Doc, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio you are you were remarkable gave us a lot of great information i hope it'll benefit uh, one or more or many thousands of my listeners out there so again thank you for joining us today well thanks for having me i've enjoyed it we'll be right back with more information but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible you're listening to the best of times radio hour here on news radio 710 keel proudly presented by a bear sunny country of shreveport your dodge chrysler ram and jeep dealer Gary's got more of the best of times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Kaligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour here on News Radio 710 Kiel. Thank you for listening to today's show. Don't forget to pick up your personal copy of the best of times in one of our 522 distribution locations. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. I'm Gary Kaligas wishing you and yours the best of times both today and every day. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Best of Times on 710 Keel. Join us again next Saturday at 9 for The Best of Times. This is News Radio 710 Keel, K E E L, Shreveport Mosier.